The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we spent the last couple of weeks um, having a, just getting a more general sense of these different forces in the mind that hinder, that obscure the clarity of the mind, right? And I sent out um, the document, the, just a cheat sheet, so you, you have a sense how the Buddha describes or the a- analogies the Buddha uses. So desire that we'll be talking about tonight, it's as if that clear space of the mind, the Buddha uses the analogy of a clear forest lake, is dyed, right? Some heavy-duty dye is put on it in it, and so it has that tint. You can't see clearly. It's like being in debt. And when desire is out of the mind, it's like being free of debt. And ill will, right, is like the water is boiling, and it's like being sick. And when uh, ill will has been abandoned in the mind, it's like how we feel when we're no longer sick, having been sick. It's a very specific, we know that experience. So use that cheat sheet as we study each of the five hindrances. And then the other thing that to, you know, for each of the five hindrances that we'll be doing for the next five weeks, just that curiosity about feeding and weakening the hindrances. So what is it that feed when... Like, what does the mind do, or what does the mind pay attention to that strengthens the experience of desiring, wanting? What can the mind do that weakens desiring, causes it to cease in the mind? I mean, we all know how obsessive our minds can be when we're caught in desire or lust or some kind of wanting. But remember, it's never about the object. You know, like we want to blame the person or the fancy electronic device or the future we're wanting. Like how great the object that we desire is. And, you know, boy, I wish it wasn't so attractive. I wish you weren't so attractive or this thing wasn't so attractive because you're causing me to burn with desire. But it's never about the object, right? Desiring is something, wanting is something mind is doing, right? Because there are sometimes we're around really amazing objects, but we're not burning with desire. And other times we can be burning with things that just aren't that important. I mean, this is always the interesting thing about talking to monks and nuns you know, who have their three robes and a few other simple things, requisites, they're called, a bowl, a few sort of toiletry-type things, but they're not supposed to have much more than that. But these things get really important. Like even the little crocheted uh, sort of fabric they use to hold their eating bowl, you know, it's like special. It becomes special or the sandals, the kind of sandals they have. When I, you know, some of you might not know, but I, uh, when I was in Burma, I ordained, you can do temporary ordination. So for the five-month retreat, or I ordained. And it was like a big deal to get a pair of flip-flops that, you know, were good, had actually worked in your feet, with your feet. There weren't that many people. I don't even have that big of feet, you know, 11 and a half, or 11 or 10 and a half, but it was like not so easy to get flip-flops or sandals that worked. So when you got something close, it was like you didn't want to lose them. You didn't want anybody to take them. And all kinds of little things that you can get really possessive about. right? So we know that wanting isn't so much about the object that we desire. Wanting is something the mind does. And this is what, you know, I mean, ideally we do this for the rest of our life, but for at least this week, 
let's become really good students of this activity of mind we call wanting. And in particular, I mean, it, it's going to be a mental activity, but the mental activity is often related to something we see or something we hear or a touch or a smell or a taste, right? So sense experience. I mean, there are other kinds of desires, like even the desire for awakening. But So we're particularly interested in sense desires. Wanting to be comfortable, for example, is a very strong desire. Wanting to go to sleep, right? Wanting to be safe. Wanting to be loved, held, respected. Is it wrong to have these desires? No, it's totally natural, unavoidable to have desire. It's really a matter of what the mind does with the desire. So be careful about pathologizing desire. It's really the attachment to desire. It's making desires to be more than what they are. Right? As a living being, as this creature that's tumbling forward, unfolding, we're going to have desires. But you know, when you watch, I don't know if you remember your high school biology, but when you look through the microscope and you saw like from the pond scum, I think every high school student, almost every high school student does this, right? And you look at those really simple creatures doing their thing under the microscope and going this way and that way. I think sometimes you'd like put salt water down and then they little creatures move away and you know, do you put sugar down and they but it's just the activity of desire going on on that simplistic level. So the question is how to be a sensitive being, how to have a mind that constructs or really woven into the experience of the mind to move towards comfort, to move away from discomfort. How to be in the middle of all this without being confused by desire or even more generally confused by sensitivity. And as I mentioned before, it really matters what we pay attention to. So that exercise I did at the beginning, it'd be nice to feel free any time during the discussion, my talking tonight, to raise questions if you have any about some of the things I'm talking about. I mean, we could, and I think in somewhere in the uh, course of the six-year Buddhist studies sequence, we spend a lot of time with craving. Because there's more than just sense craving, right? There's craving to become somebody, craving to want to be done with it all. So these are other sort of expressions of craving. But for the hindrance, we're particularly interested in sensing, I mean, uh, desiring sense experience. And so the first two uh, guided meditations, you know, just looking at the body in terms of skin, flesh, and bones. Because it, we have this idea of the body as like, a vehicle for me to enjoy sense pleasures. Like I, that's why I took birth, you know, so that I could enjoy these many sense pleasures. Chips and salsa, or, you know, beautiful visual experiences, beautiful auditory experiences. And this is this basic, um, you know, and especially even a, uh, more specifically around sexual attraction. And even if you think you're too old for sexual attraction, you know, it's just built into the system to find some visual forms pleasant and others less pleasant. It's just the way it is. I mean, it seems that way. Just like we have that same thing with clothes and people's hair and, 
you know, the structure of people's faces and even the glasses people wear. You know, we're constantly, unconsciously, consciously evaluating every visual form in terms of attractiveness and unattractiveness. It's what our mind does. And being a species, a, a creature that really relies on visual experience quite a bit, or meaning so much of the meaning we live with is uh, grounded in our visual experience. It's actually the link between thinking and seeing is very close. That's why we sometimes, you know, when we talk about knowing, we'll say seeing. I, I saw this in the mind. It's just such a common um, way that we make meaning. We often think with image as much as we do with words. So, you know, with sexual attraction and just that contemplation of the body, we see how much of the attraction to what the mind is finding interesting is based on this surface, right? It's really based on the concept, oh, that's an attractive person, or that's an attractive car. Or I was um, at a friend's house on Saturday night, and uh, um, his wife had died a couple years ago, and and um, so he's slowly kind of making the space his own, you know, after being married for several decades to this person. And uh, he bought he had bought some new furniture. And I immediately noticed it, like this amazing Northern European designed recliner, you know. And it was just as comfortable. It it was both the visual form but also the tactile experience of being in that. It was just amazing. I immediately wanted it. <laughs> Even before I sat in it, I knew immediately. Like this is like, you know, we have this with visual form. There's some things that are just visually pleasing to us. It's like kind of a branding. Like I'm the kind of person who should have a chair like that. <laughs> it's just like this association. Like I'd be. It would really help my branding. Like. I would be more of who I want to be if I had that in my living room. Same thing with like clothes and other things, and it's often just about the visual form. I mean, <clears throat> what company in the world is worth more than any other company? It's not the company with the most physical assets, like the most amount of land or factories. or It's the company that has the best brand, the best image. Right, most of you know, right? It's Apple. Right? It's not that they have all this assets, it's they have an image. We recognize it immediately. I don't have any Apple products, but somebody does, right? I mean just like like even this, when you see even their brand, their icon, right? It has I mean some of you are sort of like you're rebelling <laughs> against the sort of cultural conditioning and then that's your own trap. <laughs> but but to just respect how quickly the mind is attracted and repulsed by visual image. You know, like lawns. That's a whole interesting thing. Just the visual experience of a lawn or a beautiful park. Right? That's actually, they say, somewhat genetic because uh, you know, a park-like setting where you have low grass and sporadic trees, right? you can imagine just genetically through millions of years of our genetic programming that that's exactly where we would feel at ease. Right? I can see for quite a distance if there are any predators around and I've got a lot of trees to climb if there are, right? And so that visual experience, we're at ease. But if you're deep in the woods, we're a little bit not at ease. Or if we're in an open space, you'll notice you feel a little less at ease. Because some, on some deep level, 
that visual experience is unattractive. So just in terms of the body, we can, because uh, there's a lot of other interesting evidence about just more than so many other species, human beings have a lot of wiring around sexual attraction. And uh, so just to balance this inevitable part of our conditioning with like just a counterbalance with just the idea that, well, actually it's just skin, flesh, and bones. So when you look at people, you know, just remembering, yeah, there's a pile of skin, there's a bunch of fleshy stuff, and a bunch of bones. And that's not like any more of a construction than, oh, or whoa, right? It's actually a little bit more accurate. I mean, even though it's somewhat conceptual to say skin, flesh, and bones, but that's really what it is, maybe put together in a particular way. But we could train ourselves to notice the fleshy, to, to sense, to know that there are these fleshy parts and the bones, and it's just skin, very thin, covering it all, making it all look, you know, and then clothes and particular branding items <laughs> like our electronic devices or the jewelry we wear or don't wear, you know, and the hair and the glasses and the other things that sort of we decorate. But see, because we're trained to notice certain things, that we immediately look at certain things. And we don't pay attention to so much. So the reflection, like contemplating the body as skin, flesh, and bones, it interrupts the delusion that feeds desire. As I said, it really matters what we pay attention to. I mean, you can do another way to do this in terms of weakening desire is we could notice whatever we're looking at, whether it's a car we desire or a person we desire or a home we desire, we can pay attention to the impermanent nature of that thing. You know, it's like we see somebody we are attracted to and we just using imagination see the aging process and and high speed and then death and then the decaying and the falling apart and dust to dust. And that changes things. Or in the same thing with electronic devices, you know, the the phone, we get the new one. This one has a few scuff marks, Jamie, you gotta get with it. <laughs> Although it's much more it's newer than mine by far. In the glasses. But you can like have something like this with your phone and you you can just imagine dropping it in the toilet by mistake, of course. <laughs> like just how fragile, like whatever beauty it has, how quickly it can become something that you just have to recycle or trade in or something like that. Tikta or not Tikta huh, but Ajahn Chah talks about the cup, seeing the cup yet someone had given him a, a nice little teacup, which for a monk, you know, sort of, oh, is that okay? When you get famous enough, you can sort of get away with some of these things. And when people would criticize him, he'd say, no, no, I practice as if this cup is already broken. I see the cup is already broken. Right? So we can <coughs> have that experience with our body or anything that because of conditioning we're attracted to, we can see it as already broken, already aged, already not useful. And it doesn't mean that we're like going to be careless with the thing. It just is a, we're just taking in more of the facts so that because our mind operates in a very superficial way, we generally pay attention to just the parts that delight us. And we strate strategically don't pay attention to the parts that don't delight us because we groove on that delighting energy of wanting. It makes us feel alive. 
I had the thought once or twice, maybe even more during the sit about, you know, because I went shopping today and I was thinking, I got chips, I got sour cream, but I forgot to get salsa. And I was just thinking, well, I could, I've got my car, I could swing by the co-op and get some salsa. Or I could just, I have some diced tomatoes (laughs) and use that with a little sour cream. It's not the same as salsa though, right? And just that, you know, that play and, you know, what the mind pays attention to, what the mind attends to, like I could notice the hassle of having to go to the co-op or I could pay attention to how the delightfulness of it would start to weaken, you know, after five minutes of eating the chips and salsa, it wouldn't be that pleasant. And then seven, eight, nine minutes in, it really wouldn't be that pleasant, right? And then at some point I'd stop, and generally it's not that pleasant to eat food, for me, to eat a lot of food before I go to bed. So, but if I, if I pay attention to the moment of the first chip with the salsa that I don't yet have, like where everything's perfect, then I'm throwing timber. Did I read the sutta where the Buddha talks about the 40 cartloads of timber? Well, he, I mean, he makes the point in this sort of graphic metaphor that if you have a big bonfire going, you know, burning 40 cartloads of timber, and if you were to, for time to time, throw in more dry sticks, more dry wood, more dry leaves, dry this, dry that, you know, what would happen? Well, the fire would keep burning for a very, very long time as opposed to, and then the other alternative is to not be throwing in dry wood, dry sticks, dry leaves, either not throwing anything in or throwing wet things in. Well, what would happen? Well, it would start to go out that fire. And all of these things, we, we often assume that there's no alternative to what our mind is doing. But there's always an alternative. right? It's like uh, once the mind understands that in every single moment we're either feeding a wholesome or unwholesome state or we're weakening a wholesome or unwholesome state based on how we're relating, what we're paying attention to. So just in terms of the hindrances, we're not interested in feeding greed. We're not interested in feeding ill will. We're not interested in feeding dullness and heaviness of mind or restlessness and worry in the mind or skeptical doubting. We're interested in weakening those obscuring deliberate or um, weakening and and heavy and difficult states of mind. The states of mind that obscure the natural radiance and purity of the heart and mind. Most of you know this teaching where the Buddha says that the mind is naturally radiant and pure, but this natural radiance and purity is obscured by the visiting defilements. So this luminous, you know, radiant quality is this knowing, right? The knowing, the awareness. So that's that's the luminous part that the mind just knows, like con- this conscious, this mirror-like capacity, and the purity is that that knowing isn't stained by what's being known, known, right? So I can know something despicable or know something beautiful, but the knowing isn't, doesn't need to be affected by it. So there's something beautiful and natural and effortless, unstainable about the heart or mind. But we don't often bump into or realize this natural, ordinary, liberated state of mind, a mind that's not defiled, not burdened by its habit energies. And so the way we realize that, it's like 
It's not so much about going directly to freedom. It's getting interested in what's in the way. What's in the way of a mind that's free, a mind that's stainless? Well, the hindrances, or like I went through last week. I mean, you could divide it up any way. This way of dividing up the hindering qualities in terms of the five is quite useful. The first being sense desire. And so this week we're getting really interested in what can I bring my attention to. So I mentioned a few things already. I'll just do a few more that are a counterweight to just falling in to the habit of desiring sense experience. So just basic mindfulness, seeing things in and of themselves, cultivating a different relationship to the body, because so much of the force of sense desiring is because of a mistaken idea of the body. Right? It's like I mentioned earlier, the body is my way to have fun. That's our interpretation of the body. It puts a lot of pressure on the body, right? And we're constantly feeling betrayed by the body. And all of our sense activities, it's, there's always pushback for how we try to have fun in the body. And then the, the great betrayal is we get old, right? And foods don't taste the same and, you know, can't see as well and smell and touch and it all changes. Eating is another really important place. And again, it's not, there's nothing wrong. Like if you, if you have a beautiful lunch or you go home and have some really healthy, the sour cream, which, which was on sale at the co-op, <laughs> had on the title, and, and we're all suckers for this sort of thing. It said, I'm not kidding, Supernatural. Some of you know this brand. I forget the brand name. Maybe, that's the, maybe that is the brand name, but it's pretty big. Supernatural Organic Sour Cream. Normally, I just buy Daisy, which has got clean ingredients, but it's not organic. Just being a little stingy. <laughs> so our relationship to food, and you can also, just because of evolution, it's a big deal in terms of the programming in the mind. Food is a big deal. And so just to begin to play with the relationship to food, like using food as medicine instead of food as entertainment. Right? It's just here to keep the body healthy. I mean, we, could, we would probably, for many of us, I put myself in this camp, I'd probably be a lot healthier if all I had was one meal a day, every single day oatmeal, with a, a few, like a little handful of a variety of nuts, maybe a few, you know, a little bit, a handful of miscellaneous dried fruit, right? Probably I'd need a little bit of oil of some kind. Well, I mean, yeah, it'd be nice, but... Uh, Okay, a little kale, <laughs> a, few, a few drops of spirulina, right? Because you don't want to make it too interesting, right? So if I'm just describing like a, a glob of something. Let's say it was always cold, not warm, so it gets a little gelatinous. If you know how oatmeal is, day-old oatmeal with a few nuts that have gotten swollen, swollen because they've been in there, right? But still. If that's all we had, we'd probably be healthier right, just to take our medicine. But just I'm, how shocking that would be to us tells us how much eating is not about medicine for the body and mind, but is about entertainment. Food is about entertainment. And we've been entertained a lot. I mean, most of us are pretty privileged when it comes to food. You know, just... Uh, number of interesting restaurants and the walking through the high 
hallways of our, our, our aisleways of our grocery stores, you know, where the so many different brands and so many different varieties of food. And I mean, it's just amazing. And where have we, where has that delivered us? Like, what have we gotten from all of that variety, all that diversity of food, crunchy textures and smooth textures and this and that? And all we've done is increase the fire of burning, right? Where something like having a really, really healthy meal, like I described with oatmeal, is totally unacceptable. So this is another thing to play with this week uh, around food. And again, not in any way to be punishing, but because you're actually interested, whatever it might be. Like just one example. One meal between now and next Monday, spontaneously, even though it's there or it could be there, like it's in the fridge or it's there, you're not going to waste it, but it's there, available, it's delicious, and just decide not to have a meal. And just to observe the freak out in your mind. What do you mean not have a meal? I worked hard today. <laughs> or whatever. You know? I mean, it's just interesting what that can do. To skip a breakfast, to skip a lunch, or skip a dinner. Or if you always have dessert, to skip dessert. Or to just, like remove sugar or remove salt. Like if you're someone who likes to put salt on your food, just skip it for a few days. So it doesn't, the food isn't as interesting. Or if you're somebody who likes, uh, what's that, uh, uh, the red hot sauce, shiracha, right? If you're one of those people, like some people put it on everything, you know, just like don't use it. Whatever it is that makes your food interesting. Or just have something really simple, you know, steamed vegetables and rice, no seasoning at all. Or a salad without salad dressing. <laughs> I mean, is it just to kind of explore desire? Because it's because it's clearly not about survival at that point. You know, if we're skipping salad dressing, has. <laughs> has nothing to do with survival. But it, it, it's just like uh, an affront to the mind. And we realize how we're led around by desire. You know, or skip your fate. Like if you have a series, like I know a lot of people are watching uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, I don't know how many episodes are there in the season. I know there's not many. I remember reading that. So, you know, to skip one of the episodes, knowing that it's there, but not watching it, or whatever it is. <laughs> right? I mean, it really feels that way. Or if you're in the middle of a really good book, and like contemplating the thought of not finishing it. It's like really hard when you're really immersed in something to not finish it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Only if you're enjoying it. Because we're really looking at the experience of enjoyment, the limitations of enjoyment. Another way is to notice desire coming up, just ordinary desires, like even the desire to move your body in a set or to the desire to scratch an itch or to put a sweater on when you're cold or to take some clothes off when you're hot and to observe the desire until it disappears without gratifying it. To see that these desires arise, they're so, they seem so relevant, but then they go away, even when they're not gratified. But in the, before they go away, it feels like it, the basic message of desiring is it's not going to go away. I'm not going anywhere unless you give me. I mean, we see this with our cats and dogs, right? It's like our cat will pester us. Sometimes it, you know, if there's the, the big brutish cat from one of our neighbors is nearby, we don't let the cat out because it can get wounded. It has 
um, gotten dead, then then you know these wounds can be really hard to heal. So we'll keep it inside. But the cats used to like when I want to go out, they always let me out. But now they're not letting me out, and it will persist and sort of doing all the dance it does to show us. Initially, it just stands by the back door because we're pretty you know sensitive to the cat. We and then if that doesn't work, you know, it kind of comes to us and looks at us, <laughs> rubs against us. And then it would sort of like it sticks its paws out and starts to touch us. <laughs> it has all its sort of things. But if we just persist and not do anything, eventually the cat stops wanting to go out. But it gives up. And it's the same with our own mind. It's like desire ceases whether or not we gratify the desire. It's impermanent. So that's another way to experiment this week is to follow craving, desiring something, and just choose it. You don't have to stop uh, acting out or gratifying all of your desires, but just when you have a desire, just decide, resolve in your mind, okay, I'm going to observe this with some degree of continuity of awareness with the hypothesis, you know, based on the Buddhist teachings, that the strong burning of this desire will cease even if I don't gratify it in any way, whatever it is. Yeah. Because as long as we think that the only way to get rid of the burning of desiring is to feed the beast, well, then the beast becomes more of a beast. And that's basically what we do. I mean, we kind of understand this because we've all, you know, in little or big ways, we've experimented with leaving behind our sense pleasures, you know, backpacking or even traveling. People like to go to these places that are, you know, third world countries or places where life is more simple roughing it. What's that about? It's like realizing I don't need all that stuff. Now it's sort of become even trendy. There's several books out about you know, people who live with, they, they say like a certain number of things. They're often New Yorkers, you know, <laughs> which they have an incentive because they can only afford an apartment that's you know, 600 square feet or even less. I saw somebody, I think it was in Hong Kong, somebody who had an apartment that was like literally like a closet that could barely stretch out in the room. You know, that's all they had because property values, rentals are so high. So it's it's just kind of interesting to purposefully do this and, and really make it a study of the mind. This fewness of wants. It's like really interesting. And it's not that when things come our way, it's not that we need to be afraid of it, but to really notice the happiness of fewness of wants, the happiness of simplicity. Because it's a more stable happiness. It doesn't have the beast that always is interested in diversity because there's always a twist, a turn. Something becomes even... like there's o- It always has to be a little different to... Because everything gets boring after a while. You know, we need the new thing. It has to be special. It's like so interesting. You know, I've done a lot of uh, residential retreat practice, almost, I think, around three years altogether. And these aren't the retreats I've taught, but just being on retreat myself, in silence, in that simple schedule. And, And a lot of those retreats, the days of those retreats, that's what they serve, oatmeal in the morning. You know, and there's some nice stuff you can put in. But it's pretty simple at a lot of the retreat centers I've been at over those many days of getting up, knowing that there's going to be green tea and oatmeal with some raisins, some sunflower seeds. I usually put a little butter in it. You know, I try not to put anything sweet in it except sometimes some, except the raisins. And, uh, but there's something, even though, you know, initially it's like, and I, I notice I still look forward to one day a week, like at IMS and Spirit Rock, they have boiled eggs. 
at those places. The Kamagon retreats, we have boiled eggs every day. <laughs> I've been meaning to talk to our people who organize our food. And then once a week you have dessert. And so it's just interesting to, to notice how satisfying it is. And it isn't that the oatmeal, you know, like that sort of stereotypic, oh, you know, oatmeal's so great. No, it's not that. What really makes it great is the absence of the agitation of wanting something interesting. Right? Knowing what it's going to be like. There's something like knowing what it's going to be like and knowing how to be content with that is very peaceful. This is the secret, by the way, to marriage, if you're wondering, right? It's like, if you want things to be different, you're going to have trouble. But if you learn to love and appreciate what it is, then it, it can be really nice. Just like, oh yeah, we know each other. It's familiar. It's something to trust. It's good enough. I know it's like, uh, it's such an affront to say that about true love. <laughs> I think Patrice said this in one of her talks way back when. M most of you know Patrice. She's often here at the Buddhist Studies class and uh, been teaching here at Common Ground since the 90s, late 90s. And uh, way back when, uh, in one of her early talks, she was quoting some article she read, I think, where, um, if I remember correctly, the author said the secret to marriage is to lower your expectations. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's something about, like, uh, something being good enough and really tuning into that and really appreciating, like, loving and appreciating what's good enough about our car, about our cell phone, about our friends, about our life, about our house, about our clothes. So we're actually practicing contentment with what we have versus what we normally do is we practice discontentment with what we have, right? We take out the catalog or now these, these days, you know, we're online. But I don't know about you, I'm sure a lot of you, my generation, when we remember getting the Montgomery Wards or the Sears catalog around November, right? And paging through all the things we want. I mean, it was like endless amounts of time I could spend looking at catalogs about possibilities. We used to go to Camden Pool in North Minneapolis. I grew up in North Minneapolis. And uh, the library was uh, almost every day in the summer. We'd walk a couple miles to get there. And then my dad would swing by on his way back from work and pick us up. And we'd often hang out in the library. And I, and I remember, as just as a young kid, you know, wasn't that old, I would look at the yachting magazine. It's like these big boats, you know, like, oh, wow. <laughs> oh, this page, oh. <laughs> or that Dalai Lama tells a story when he was giving teachings in L.A. Um, I think I heard... Maybe Joseph Goldstein tell this story. Um, and he would be driving from the hotel to the convention center or the auditorium where he's giving his teachings. And it was down this road where there are a lot of electronic stores. And just there in the car, looking out the window, he started to want things. He didn't even know what they were. He, <laughs> he, maybe you don't know this, but he likes sort of gadgets and electronic things. And and this is just that nature because it's, it can feel enlivening. Wanting feels enlivening, right? That like I'm going towards something that makes life worth living because I'm going to have this. I'm going to experience that. I need something to look forward to, like that proverbial carrot that we're dangling out in front of us that makes life interesting, like chips and salsa when I go home or... I can watch something on the internet when I go home or I'll see my sweetie when I'm home or I'll, you know, my cat. If, if it's, you know, our cat's not very 
affectionate yet. <laughs> Someday we expect <laughs> things will turn around. Or at least in the winter time we'll be more affectionate because <laughs> it will appreciate our body warmth, right? But in the summer it's like prefers to go down into the basement and sleep. <laughs> so why did we take this cat in? <laughs> Anyway, there's endless things we c I could say about craving and wanting, but it would be nice to hear from some people and ask some questions. Let me just mention, so besides the moderation each eating, also look at talking this week around sense desire. Like the, It's just so interesting when you're in a conversation, whatever it's about, it's like always wanting more, you know, the, and then just it's like hard to end some conversations, especially when you're with a friend. So really notice the ending. And like you with, if you have a friend, especially someone who's in the class, you know, like just stop talking for a while. You're there. You just take two minutes off. You're at like a restaurant or having tea together, you know, with a your real buddy, and just enjoy. But before you run out of things to say, just take two minutes off. Just sit there and silence and notice, like the wa the wanting to share, the wanting to connect, the wanting to find out how did that work out, what did that person do, you know, basically swapping stories and wanting to know. So that's another place to explore desire. So what comments from your own practice that you'd like to share? What have you learned about sense desire in your own mind over the years of your practice? Questions? Yeah, you want to start us off, Raha? First row of chairs. Thank you. Um, by the way, I've from the beginning of the session, I wanted to ask this question. So that is desire, <laughs> which has been with me for the whole hour. <laughs> so... Um, in the beginning, you mentioned that um, the the desire and craving and sensual pleasure is a function of mind, not body. And it is hard for me to understand two specific specific ones, like um, one when you're pretty much sleepy, very sleepy, like you haven't slept for two days. To me, it is mostly bodily desire, right? Your body can't take it anymore. It's not... A, function of your mind and also like when you are very hungry like if I skip my lunch either if I'm busy or if I decide to skip my lunch around four two hours before dinner I'm like I get a headache so to me it it means it's a body well clearly the body feels something right I mean there's sensation in the body the sensation of hunger the cessation like and that's why if you notice in the when the Buddha talks about restlessness and remorse or restlessness and worry and sloth and torpor, he's na the reason there are two words there, he's naming both the sleepiness in the body and the heaviness in the mind or the restlessness in the body and the restlessness as a mental experience because they operate in parallel with each other, right? So yeah, there will be a physical component, but what does the mind do with that heaviness in the mind? Like the thought, the mental image of your bed, or the idea of when all the kids are in bed and my work is done and it's 10.30, then I get, right? There's that desiring for 10.30 at night or the desiring, the attra attraction toward the image of the bed, right? So that is the wanting. It's that lean, that energetic leaning forward, that inner, in the heart, in the mind, that inner promise that if this, then I'll be happy. When this comes, I'll be happy. Not having this yet, can't be happy yet. So desiring is postponing happiness to when I get what I desire, which means I'm agitated now. That's the burning, right? Remember I read last week, from the Dhammapada, no burning like desire, no grip, what is it? Yeah, no grip like hate, no net 
like delusion. So if you are pretty much sleepy or you are hungry and you know your body needs food or your body needs uh, sleep, mm-hmm. but you're not obsessing over it and you're not agitated, then you're, you don't have desire. Your body just simply wants to sleep. Yeah. You don't call that desire. No, it's the, it's the misunderstanding of desire, right? So there's, you know, with hunger, there's the tactile experience, right? So the body is sensitive to sensation, and there's the sensation of hunger. So there's these two things. There's the sensation of hunger and a body that can feel that sensation. That's illuminated by consciousness, and when craving is added to that, that's the yoke, you know, that makes a suffering human being. But you can have consciousness, you can have a body that's sensitive, and you can have the sensation of hunger, and there doesn't have to be any suffering there. Yeah. You could be dying of starvation without suffering. It wouldn't be a pleasant experience probably, but it you wouldn't have to have mental suffering even if you were starving to death. Yeah, thanks, Raha. Other comments or questions from your practice? Mary? Hi, it's Mary. Um, just I just wanted to share a couple things. One is, um, trained as an architect, I've been aware... I, I never really saw the suffering of uh, beauty and and aesthetics <laughs> until coming to common ground. And actually, on retreats, I've begun to see, you know, the constant wanting to rearrange and new light fixtures. And, you know, and so one of my practices is like, can I leave the meditation hall with the cushions a mess and not straighten them all? I mean, honestly, that's like a practice for me. <laughs> and so it's really interesting what I might think is a positive can go to the negative. And um, I've been watching this year the desire to get rid of things <laughs> and that I think and have been getting rid of things and giving away and also that delusion that somehow that's going to really make me happy and like how much can I get rid of. And now I'm really seeing that kind of the suffering that can come from like the desire of not having stuff. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> no, it's true. We we get more sensitive, and life is harder to bear. I think John. Hi, uh, John. Um, so, with these hindrances or defilements, as I've been reading about them and we've been hearing about them, it seems to me when I look back on my life, I've really identified with them. Like that's who I was. Right, I was a person who desired. I was a person who didn't like this, who wouldn't stand that. I was a person who got nervous in these situations or bored with those or uh, or very skeptical doubt. And it's really sort of refreshing to see these as something unto themselves as opposed to something that I am. And it just really popped up the other, just a few days ago when I was, I can sort of go down a little rabbit hole of depression and I was about, I was going down there and all of a sudden I said, uh, instead of I loathe myself, I was saying, my mind doesn't like me very much. (laughs) It's not trustworthy. It's not telling me stories that help me. And so I've been, as I've been just going through my day, for example, you know, spending time with my wife and talking, we might have a slight disagreement, and I'll think, well, I'll say this, and I'll go, no, I know you. Yeah. <laughs> You're like telling me, say, Mara, I see you. you. Yeah, I see you, right. And so what would the heart do? And I come up with a completely different answer. Yeah. It's been, um, I hope this sticks. <laughs> yeah. Well, it will if we, if we, sense the freedom in seeing it because it is unpleasant like Mary was suggesting to see all these things and the other thing that you're sharing sort of brings out John that I think is important is these patterns although they're not personal they have a lot of coherence a lot of sort of inner intelligence right and how they operate as patterns in the mind and body heart 
So there's a lot of intelligence, but it's not personal, but, but they look personal, right, because of the coherence. Yeah, the, I was talking about this in an AA meeting earlier, and it was like these things were like, uh, like a three-dimensional impossible-to-solve puzzle, and you can't really get in there and argue with it. You've just got to say no. Yeah, we just have, <laughs> what even better than no is, I see you, I understand you. I think Zinzile was next. And then you could be right over here. Okay, this kind of goes back to um, Raha's question, but it's also like just some really practical kind of advice. So when sometimes when you sit when you're when your foot goes numb because of where you're sitting and you don't want to move. Like, has anyone ever lost circulation from sitting too long for the numbness? Because it is a body thing. And then the second is, um, yeah, like, how do you, how do you work with, um, you know, these compulsions that your body will kind of give you? Um, I know you can direct your attention toward them and get to know them, but just like, what will happen if you just sit there and let your, foot go numb for yeah wow well if you find that when you get up the numbness tingling goes away pretty quickly i'm told by medical people that it's not a you don't need to worry about it so much if it i mean jeffrey's behind you you can <laughs> i don't know if you know anything about this but if it lingers for a while it's better not to sit the way that you're sitting sometimes over the years of practice the body begins to relax more and the way that we're sort of putting pressure on nerves changes and we don't we don't have it as much but it is an issue but if it goes away then it's just unpleasantness and it's not necessarily doing any long-term harm to the body but you, you know it makes sense when you're initially getting into your posture to just correlate what's happened in previous sitting times and sit in a way where there's less of that and then choosing amount of time that you pretty clear that you're not doing damage to your body to be sitting for the amount of time you've decided to sit. And that way you can really work with the discomfort as sensation being known. Because it's really not different, if you're actually harming yourself, it's really not different than sitting in a room in a building that's on fire. I mean, of course, you're going to get up and get out of the building. And so if you're sitting in a way that's actually harmful to your body, it's important to make an adjustment. Because we're not, the practice isn't about learning to tolerate pain. The practice is about studying the mind. And part of what we do study is the mind and how it relates to physical discomfort. There's a lot of learning in that. But there's plenty of physical discomfort that's not actually harming the body that we can work with. So we don't have to use physical unpleasantness, discomfort, that is related, it's actually information from the body saying, this isn't good, don't do this because you're hurting the knee and you won't be able to walk. <laughs> yeah. But nothing ever happened with anybody, like Not you never heard of, of yeah. <laughs> like something happening from them sitting there well, too long. There, there are people have sprained their ankle or because what oh. happens is they get up too fast oh. and their foot's asleep and then they fall over. That's happened a couple times. I mean, I've sat probably with tens of thousands of people, and that's happened twice, you know, and all the times I've sat with people that somebody stood up and they weren't paying enough attention, they didn't know their foot had fallen asleep. Because we notice it initially, but once it's really falling asleep, we don't notice it anymore. And the people just sort of stand up, and then there's no support, and they fall back down. Yeah. Did you, you can have the last word here. I don't know your name. Uh, my name's Carol. Um, and, uh, one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking about, you know, how wrapped up we are in, you know, comfort and, um, you know, uh, is there a point at which, you know, sort of denying, you know, one or, or not feeding one hindrance, t hindrance tips you into another one? Like, you know, if you, can you push, you know, I mean, I, I could, I, I could eat, eat oatmeal every day every meal you know with nothing and and then start to feel so kind of self-righteous about how good I'm being you know it seems like you know by doing one good thing you're sort of <laughs> moving into something that that is 
you're just replacing it with another hindrance, I guess, is what I'm Right. Well, wondering. just remember the whole path is about joy. <laughs> but wait a minute. <laughs> the whole path. Don't everyone say that to yourself. Because it's very easy after a talk and discussion like this to think the whole path, life is so miserable, we might as well get in alignment with how miserable it is so that we won't be disappointed later when we realize how miserable life is, right? So the whole path is about joy, about the joy of release and the frustration of thinking that joy comes from having. So remember, you don't, we're, we're playing with like skipping a meal or having oatmeal instead of uh, Eggs Benedict or whatever. We're playing with that to learn about the mind. We're learning about the joy of renunciation, the joy of not craving, the freedom from desiring, the burning of desiring, the happiness of contentment, the happiness of simplicity, the happiness of generosity, because like Moore suggested, the more we think happiness is about having, we're basically creating a beast that will never be satisfied. That's what we're setting in motion. And that's that stinginess of the heart. right? And we see this being manifested in very public ways in the media. Certain people will remain unnamed. right? Just bundles of neurotic energy. This is so many of our celebrities are that way. And they're just, they're just more public versions of ourselves. You know? And even those of us who are really cool, and so we want natural fabrics, and we want you know, this and that, and you know, we would never be seen with this kind of a car or this kind of a thing because what m makes us sort of in the groove is something else. That's just the same. It's really just the same because it's like when I get my branding just right, you know, like you were saying, I can I get away with just having three shirts, you know, or you know whatever that little thing that we think is so special. That's its own prison because we think that happiness is about these su superfi superficial things instead of the joy of renunciation. So the basic path the Buddha taught, and I'll just end it with this, is first he, he would see people, they think happiness comes from having things. He says, okay, if you really want to have things, then I'll tell you the secret. Become a really good human being. Cultivate non-harming. Cultivate generosity. And over the long haul, really good things are going to start happening to you. And then when really good things started happening to people, I mean, this is sort of the ideal trajectory of a spiritual life. First, he'd give you the secret teachings of getting everything you want. Be a really good person. Live with a lot of integrity to the nth degree and be really generous. And over time, you will set in motion the causes for really good things to come back to you. And then when people have you know, good things starting to happen to them, he would carefully help, help them see how it's endless. You never get enough. It never ends. It could always be better, right? And then when they, when they begin to see that, he would turn their mind toward the happiness of release, the happiness of renunciation, the happiness of non-attachment. Because it's a happiness that's so much more refined than the happiness of having a really good life a family that's harmonious, kids who love you but are independent, a spouse who really gets you and treats you in a way that you think you should be treated and, but keeps mixing it up so it doesn't get boring. <laughs> and, and all those other sort of perfect things. You live in a neighborhood that's just right, you know, and just the right amount of interest and safety and orderliness and this and that. That isn't an end, right? And a lot of us have, you know, a lot of privilege in terms of the external world that we inhabit. It's pretty nice in terms of what we can imagine wanting. 
and really realize that I'm still a neurotic human being, you know, still have depression, still have anxiety, still a heart is discontent. And then that means we're open to the Buddha's more subtle teachings. Is there a happiness of non-attachment? Because that happiness is unconditioned. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy and have a lot or you're poor and you don't have a lot. You have a really young and healthy body or a not so healthy body, an older body. The happiness of non-attachment, what would get in the way of the happiness of non-attachment, the happiness of non-clinging? What circumstance could interrupt that happiness? So it's this unconditioned happiness. Now I know it's not very convincing, but it's not very convincing because we haven't pursued that theme. So this is, we can't really pursue that theme until we get a little bit better at abandoning the hindrances. When we're good at putting aside the hindrances, then the mind is keen, subtle enough to begin to detect that happiness of not needing anything, not needing things to be different. It's such a relief not to need anything from the world. It's such a relief to just let the world be what it is. But that's a subtle kind of happiness. But just because it's subtle does not mean it isn't um, what the heart actually seeks. But we'll keep coming back to this in the weeks ahead. Sorry to go over a little bit. And Laura, wherever you are, if you wouldn't mind waiting a week, I went over a little bit. Sorry to... <laughs> Laura's going to do a little talk on Donna, but it's already six minutes past, so we should end here. So just take a few seconds, let go of the words. And as we do our practice this week, remember we're on a path of peace and happiness, not austerity. The Buddha rejected asceticism as a path that goes nowhere. Right? So don't forget that. Have an interesting time this week. Uh, Roger and Kim, two longtime community leaders, are going to be doing a kirtan, a sort of a music meditation, joy meditation, this Saturday night at 7, Roger? 7 through, I don't remember. Look at the poster. <laughs> Good, a number of other things coming up too. Take a look at the newsletter. Have a good week, everyone. Uh, help bring the folding chairs down if you would. Sorry about that, Laura. <laughs> Is it going to be okay? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.